Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Today on the program, I'll be discussing the day of action that was held by the Canadian Federation of Students across the country. Specifically, I'll be talking with Shelley Melanson. She's the chair of CFS Ontario. And here in Winnipeg, I'll be talking to Johnny Sapatyuk. He is the chair of the Target Poverty Campaign here in Manitoba. Also, executive producer Cy Gonick will have a discussion with Peter Kolchilski who is uh, going to talk about a fascinating proposal by the Gitscan people of northwestern British Columbia. Mitch Fidalik will have Music as the Weapon, focusing on music from the Spanish Civil War. We will have alert headlines and Around the Left in Seven Days as well. And these are the alert headlines for the week of November 12th, 2009. In Washington, the House of Representatives narrowly passed its landmark health insurance reform bill by a vote of 220 to 215. Only one Republican supported the bill. President Obama praised the vote and called on the Senate to pass similar legislation. Obama said that he is convinced that he will soon sign comprehensive health insurance reform legislation into law. While supporters of President Obama celebrated the passage of the health care bill, the legislation also marks a victory for opponents of abortion rights. On Saturday, anti-abortion Democrats helped push through an amendment to prohibit anyone who receives government health insurance subsidies from enrolling in an insurance plan that covers abortion. In addition, abortions won't be covered under the proposed government-run insurance plan. The amendment has been described as the biggest victory in years for opponents of abortion rights. Meanwhile, the U.S.'s unemployment rate climbed to 10.2% in October, a huge jump from 9.8% in September, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. 15.7 million workers are now unemployed. The underemployment rate is equally staggering at 17.5%, meaning more than 27 million American workers are without full-time jobs. Supporters of ousted Honduran President Manuel Zelaya have said that they will boycott the November 29th presidential elections even if the deposed head of state is restored to office before then. The anti-coup resistant front said it is already too late to ensure a free and fair ballot. The group said taking part in the vote would be legitimizing the coup d'etat. Members of the resistant front have mounted daily demonstrations since June 28th, when soldiers dragged Zelaya from the presidential palace and put him on a plane to Costa Rica. Many of the protests have been broken up violently by soldiers and police on the orders of the coup regime, with a toll of a dozen deaths and hundreds injured and arrested. Soon after last week's deadline, coup leader Roberto Michelete took to the Honduran airwaves to unilaterally announce a new administration, with himself at its head, made up of candidates proposed by political parties and other sectors of civil society. Zelaya responded by pronouncing the accord dead, prompting U.S. officials to urge both sides to resume negotiations. Some members of the resistance front have blamed the United States and the Organization of American States for failing to compel the Michelete regime to comply with the accord. Politicians have conceded that a legally binding treaty on climate change is unlikely to happen during next month's Copenhagen summit. The global treaty to combat climate change will be postponed by at least six months, or possibly as much as a year or more, according to senior officials and politicians. 
Ed Miliband, the UK climate change secretary, said yesterday UN negotiations were moving too slowly and put the blame partly on a history of mistrust between developed and developing nations. Developing countries have been frustrated by delays, leading some African nations to walk out of negotiations. During last-ditch talks in Barcelona this week, it was conceded that a politically binding agreement would be the best outcome at the Copenhagen, Copenhagen summit. The Guardian newspaper reports that a whistleblower at the International Energy Agency has claimed the world is much closer to running out of oil than official estimates admit. The whistleblower has accused the agency of deliberately underplaying a looming shortage for fear of triggering panic buying. The senior official claimed the U.S. has played an influential role in encouraging the watchdog to underplay the rate of decline from existing oil fields while overplaying the chances of finding new reserves. The allegations raise serious questions about the accuracy of the organization's latest World Energy Outlook on oil demand, which is used by the British and many other governments to help guide their wider energy and climate change policies. The peak oil theory is now gaining support at the heart of the global energy establishment. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and U.S. President Barack Obama held a private meeting on November 9th, during which the two discussed Iran's nuclear ambitions as well as the stalled Middle East peace talks. Obama reaffirmed the U.S.'s strong commitment to Israeli security and discussed security cooperation, said a statement issued by the White House. In the closed-door meetings, Netanyahu told Obama that there was never any Israeli intention to halt settlement construction before entering into talks with the Palestinians. Staying in the Middle East, dozens of protesters reenacted the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall by downing part of the Israeli annexation wall built on local Palestinian lands north of Jerusalem. The Israeli army rushed to the area, firing tear gas at the protesters. This is the second time Palestinians have brought down a section of the wall over the past week. Abdullah Abu Rama of the Popular Committee Against the Wall said that this is the first step towards a series of activities planned to be held in coming days to express the Palestinians' steadfastness and rejection of the annexation wall on their lands. In 2004, the International Court at The Hague issued a non-binding ruling stating that the wall is illegal and it should be removed as it is built deep in the, into the Palestinian territories, separating the residents from each other and from their orchards and farmlands. Twenty years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a new BBC poll has found widespread dissatisfaction with free market capitalism. In the global poll for the BBC World Service, only 11% of those questioned across 27 countries said that capitalism was working well. Most thought regulation and reform of the capitalist system were necessary, with very strong support around the world for governments to distribute wealth more evenly. In Canada, 20% said capitalism is fatally flawed and a different economic system is needed. And nearly 70% said capitalism has problems that can be addressed through regulation and reform. And those are the alert headlines for November 12th, 2009. And now around the left in seven days for the week of November 12th to 19th. 
Malalaya Joya will be launching her book, A Woman Among Warlords, in Winnipeg. She will be speaking at the University of Winnipeg on November 16th at 7 p.m. At 27 years of age, Joya was elected to Afghanistan's new parliament, but shortly thereafter was suspended because of her unrelenting criticism of NATO-backed warlords and drug barons. She has survived numerous assassination attempts. Her book has been described as a passionate and devastating critique of Western intervention in Afghanistan. Slow Food Nova Scotia is hosting a public screening of the film The Edible Schoolyard on November 15th at the Keshen Goodman Library at 2.30 p.m. This film tells the story of how a community garden at an elementary school inspired staff and students to make the transition from bagged lunches to freshly picked food. The discussion following the film will feature Kathy Aldous of the Dr. Arthur Hines Elementary School Garden, as well as the Urban Garden Coordinator of the Ecology Action Centre. Christoph Herman of the Working Life Research Center in Vienna will be speaking in Toronto. Herman will discuss the privatization of public services and the consequences for labor. The talk is to begin at 6.30 on November 19th at the Center for Social Justice in Toronto. The mid-year meeting of Faculty for Palestine takes place on the weekend of November 13th to 15th in Toronto at Ryerson University. Sessions include an introduction to the history and ideas of Faculty for Palestine, the, Ca the Palestine-Canada connection, the silencing campaign on university campuses, the academic boycott and divestment strategy, and the challenges of local and international solidarity. A $20 registration fee is being requested to help cover costs. Mark Ellis, director of the Center for Jewish Studies at Baylor University, will be speaking in Winnipeg on November 18th. Ellis will deliver a lecture entitled, Does Judaism Equal Israel? A Jewish Theologian Speaks Out. He will be speaking at the University of Manitoba at 2.30 p.m. and then later that evening at 7.30 p.m. at the Knox United Church. The Trans Inclusion Group is hosting a free screening of Yapping Out Loud, Contagious Thoughts from an Unrepentant Whore on November 17th in Toronto at the Centre for Women and Trans People at the University of Toronto at 6pm. The film is a video documentation of a monologue by transsexual sex worker and performance artist Mira Soleil Ross on how anti-prostitution campaigns tragically impact prostitutes' working conditions and lives. And that's Around the Left for the week of November 12th to 19th. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. The Canadian Federation of Students represents over half a million students from more than 80 university and college students' unions from across Canada. On November 5th, the CFS chapters held a Day of Action, an annual CFS event. But there was something different about this year's Day of Action. And to find out what, we have contacted Shelley Melanson, the chair of CFS Ontario. So, Shelley, welcome to Alert Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Now talk to us about this year's Day of Action and why you decided to broaden the scope beyond the tuition freeze issue. 
Well, obviously, um, you know, uh, in Ontario, and I, I'm sure is, is similar in Manitoba, um, we've been hit pretty hard by the economic recession. Um, we've seen over 300,000 Ontarians lose their job just in the last year. Um, but also we have a history of uh, conservative governments that have essentially um, decimated our uh, social services and social infrastructure. Um, and while the money announced um, through our Liberal government uh, for the vast majority of, of social services like health care, public housing, post-secondary education, uh, education, uh, we haven't seen enough money um, sort of kept pace into the system to ensure that those services are there to support people. Um, and we know that in times of deficit, uh, it has often been the habit of governments to sort of pit services against one another. Um, and we felt that it was important for us to build a broad-based coalition to oppose potential cuts, but also to start looking at what the province needed to do to address the needs of Ontarians. Um, so we built a campaign called the Campaign for a Poverty-Free Ontario. And the idea was to build a, you know, kind of umbrella campaign aimed at addressing the systemic issues uh, that cause poverty. Um, and obviously, access to education or lack of access to education is one of those. So it was allowing students to talk about some of the issues that we've been doing work on, but also incorporate different themes. Um, and, and through this, we, we built a series of coalition partners, both within labor as well as other social justice and community groups, to support these efforts. And can you uh, tell us some of these groups that uh, you uh, engaged this year? Sure. So uh, we've been working with the Ontario Federation of Labor, um, and through that, it's various affiliate groups like QP Ontario, um, uh, as well as OPSU, uh, as well as the Ontario Secondary Schools Teachers Federation. Um, we've, we've also been working very closely with a number of social justice organizations, uh, such as Campaign 2000, uh, which is a, an anti-poverty coalition in the province. Um, you know, Street Health, which uh, represents uh, street nurses um, and works on advocacy for the homeless, um, as well as a number of uh, you know cultural uh, groups, um, as well as the Interfaith uh, Social Assistance Reform Coalition. So, a very broad um, Tamil youth organizations. Uh, the idea was to bring as many people under the tent so that we could be collectively organizing around this issue of poverty. Well, Shelley Milan said, here in Winnipeg, uh, we had a very raucous crowd in front of the Manitoba legislature, but tell us what the day of action looked like across Ontario. Well, there were things that were happening in over 13 different cities in the province, uh, and they ranged from, you know, forums happening on campus in uh, open areas to major rallies like the ones that took place in Sudbury, Ottawa, um, and we had, you know, up to uh, over, you know, 7,000 students in the streets across the province uh, that were holding actions, uh, calling on the government to invest in post-secondary education, but invest as well in social infrastructure. Um, and these uh, culminated with rallies that went throughout the cities, but also uh, in Toronto we had a march that ended at the Ontario Legislature at Queen's Park, um, where we were joined by community organizations and had several speeches, which was really fantastic to see. And, and in Toronto, we were uh, facing several in the midst of our march, but we still were able to maintain, maintain 3,000 strong uh, in the streets despite uh, poor weather conditions. Tell us about how poverty affects university students and why this is important, especially in times of economic peril. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously uh, poverty impacts students in a variety of capacities. Uh, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, um, our students come from a wide 
a variety of, of demographics and, and, and communities. Um, you know, many of them marginalized communities that face economic marginalization and, and have experienced poverty uh, growing up. But it's also important to recognize that, you know, a university graduate or a university student or college student uh, today in the province looks very different than what it would have 10 years ago. Uh, it's not just about graduating high school students. It's also about workers who are coming back to get skills retraining. Um, obviously, in a country where 70% of all new listed jobs require some form of post-secondary education, you have a case where when there's been significant job loss in the manufacturing industry, there's a number of people who need to be able to access the system but still be able to put food on their table. Um, and so our students interact with a variety of social services um, and are impacted by a lack of standards. And so we obviously recognize that because of that, it's important for us to be collectively working on these issues. Can you tell us about the opposition that there is in some quarters against CFS adopting this broader approach? How serious is it, and how will you, uh, how you deal, will you deal with that? I mean, I think that by and large, the vast majority of our uh, members are actually really supportive of this campaign, and quite frankly, this is work that they've been calling for themselves. On our campuses, we have students who are doing, ish- who are working around access to healthcare. Uh, you know, talk to a nursing student on campus or a student who's in, uh, you know, uh, pursuing medicine. They'll tell you the- about the impacts of an underfunded healthcare system. They'll tell you how hospital closures affect them and affect Ontarians. And so these are issues that people are working on anyway. Uh, if you talk to social work students about access to public housing, in the city of Toronto, we have over 70,000 families who are on a waiting list for public housing, and the average wait time is approximately 12 years. So these are issues that students face on a daily basis, and there's the work that, quite frankly, our members are already doing. And so it only was a natural progression that the Federation, as you know, a democratic framework that represents them, should take on this work. Um, and I think, to be honest, the opposition that we face, generally speaking, always tends to be people who are ideologically opposed to access to social services. Uh, when we're fighting uh, for access to post-secondary education, it's usually just the people who are ideologically opposed to reductions in tuition fees that are unsupportive of the campaign. But, I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't support universal access, I, it's hard for our campaigns to appeal to you. <laughs> Well, let's talk about uh, ideology playing a role in uh, student elections. Can you comment on the events that happened first in, I believe, Waterloo University and the Conservative Party federally and provincially getting involved, and then more recently at uh, York University? Well, there's been a string of workshops that have happened in Ontario, and it's, I mean, it's actually quite disturbing to me um, that the Conservative Party has been holding um, for students to hold uh, workshops on how to leave the Federation and how to disaffiliate with OPERGs on campuses. Um, and it's it's been quite interesting because there was actually um, a freedom of information request that was done to uh, at York by the Students' Union where they discovered that there were actually email correspondences between um, senior administration and um, members of, of federal parliament, conservative members of federal parliament, asking about were going to be thrown out. It actually turned out um, that one of the minister's um, assistants actually was a scrutineer in the uh, York Federation of Students elections. And I find this incredibly perplexing because, you know, absolutely students who are 
are going to run for office. And you know what? That's great, uh, regardless of what political party you're from. I think that's important. I, I support involvement in our students' unions. But there's a difference between, you know, um, having students run who have a political, particular political perspective and having a political party have influence or attempt to undermine the democratic framework of a student's union. And that's we're having, seeing circumstances where um, in the past, uh, have actually either funded uh, candidates to run, or in this ca case, are at York are attempting to actually throw. And I would just suggest that, like, that is completely undermining of the democratic processes that all the students who are members of that students' union have collectively agreed upon. Um, it certainly is not for politicians to tell us how to run our elections. It's actually for students at the individual students' union to make a collective decision about how to run their elections. Shelley Melanson, the chair of the Canadian Federation of Students Ontario, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. No problem. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Have a wonderful night. You too. Now on Alert Radio, we're going to speak to Johnny Sopatiak, who is the chair of the CFS Manitoba and the Make Poverty History or Target Poverty Campaign here in Manitoba. Welcome to Alert Radio, Johnny. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, we just spoke to Shelley Melanson in uh, Ontario, and she was telling us about their day of action. Tell us about what happened here in Manitoba. Uh, did you get a turnout that you were happy with? Yeah, absolutely. We we had a huge turnout here in um, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, hundreds of students and community members uh, had rallies on campuses across across the city, and then converged um, for a rally and a march to the legislature. There was also a rally that was held in Brandon, Manitoba, at the Brandon uh, University Students Union Building. Well, uh, I was at the rally. Tell us, what was the message that you gave to the crowd and you were addressing to politicians? Well, the message we were bringing was uh, a message that uh, students in the community are, are demanding a poverty reduction plan from, from our government. Uh, we're, we're calling on the government to create a plan that, that has targets and timelines. It's adequately financed and uh, has the goal of reducing poverty in Manitoba by least 25% by the year 2015. Um, so those are the targets uh, that you're asking the government to meet. Is that all of them? Uh, th I mean, those are the targets and timelines. We, we have uh, asked the government um, to, to include key planks in the plan, and those range from uh, living wage to better access to education to safe, affordable housing, transportation, unemployment insurance, social assistance, um, student aid and, and a number of means, and these are all based off a comprehensive report that was done by Make Poverty History Manitoba, as well as the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives Manitoba, which was a comprehensive anti-poverty reduction plan. Well, this by no means was the first rally the CFS has put on. In fact, the Minister of Advanced Education, Diane McGifford, has congratulated CFS for broadening the scope of its campaign over the years, uh, over previous years, rather, uh, this year. But uh, do you have any indication that the new leadership of the NDP will be any more serious about meeting the targets that you've put forth than they did under the leadership of the now-departed Gary Dewar? 
Absolutely. We've, we've had a really uh, positive relationship here in Manitoba um, as students with, with the provincial government as well as, as the opposition parties uh, in our legislature. With the change in leadership, a new, um, a new premier coming in, Greg Selinger, we have seen a shift uh, to, more, to a more um, consultative process. Students in Manitoba definitely have not been, been impressed with some of the go- government's policies in, in terms of poverty uh, reduction as well as tuition fee levels. Um, but, but with, like you said, with, uh, with the new government coming in or the new premier, there, there has been that shift. We actually just did get a phone call from the premier's office requesting a meeting with us because he was unable to attend the rally because he, he, he is taking, um, is taking uh, poverty reduction strategies seriously and, and is wanting to hear the, the view from students and the community. Uh, any closing thoughts here on Alert Radio? Uh, our listeners are across the country uh, upon the day of action held by the CFS. I, I mean, I think it was a fantastic day. Students here in Manitoba are, are super energized with, with the results that we saw. The campaign, the Target Poverty campaign here in our province isn't, isn't going to end. We're going to keep going. We have a plans for a provincial lobby week come New Year. We're going to be presenting thousands of signed postcards to our premier, and I think it underscores uh, the value of, of working together and the strength in numbers and, and working with, within the Canadian Federation of Students and working with other uh, broad-based community organizations. Well, Johnny Sopadiak, thank you for joining us on Alert Radio. For sure. Thanks for having us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, my name is Cy Gonick. I'm the executive producer of uh, Alert Radio, and um, I'm going to be conducting this interview. The Gitscan people of northwest British Columbia have announced that they want to abandon their status as Indians under the old Indian Act in exchange for a greater share of the resources on their, on their traditional lands. To explain what this means and to give us his thinking on whether this is a good way to go for First, for first Peoples, we've contacted Peter Kalchiski of the Native Studies Department at the University of Manitoba and author of several important books about Indigenous peoples. Peter is also a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Welcome once again to Alert, Peter Kalchiski. Thanks, Sai. Nice to talk to you. Who are the Gitscan people, and what do you make of uh, this proposal? Uh, what would they be giving up, and what would they be getting? Hey, well, first, the Gitscan people are a First Nation that uh, lives in the sort of Pacific Northwest uh, on the coast in northwestern British Columbia. And they're known to us uh, uh, largely because uh, they and a neighboring people, the Wet'suwet'en, who are uh, Dene-speaking people who adopted many of the Gitan cultural um, uh, features, I guess, um, uh, went to court to assert their Aboriginal title successfully in what's known as the Dalgamuk case uh, in the late 1990s. So uh, the Gitsan and Wintuitan people uh, test case at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court agreed that they still have outstanding Aboriginal title to their territory and that their oral histories um, uh, were very important and should be weighed by the court in, uh, in determining that. Uh, the proposal, which is about a year and a half old, um, uh, is basically that um, certain at least aspects, if not all, of the Indian Act uh, not be applied to them. Um, it's a, it's a, I mean, first I'd have to say it's a very creative proposal. 
um, uh, that I think they're now has gained some attention because they've sort of found a way of selling it within the a language that might be acceptable to the new conservative or to the conservative uh, minority federal government, so that they've uh, they've made a. a uh, what is actually a fairly radical proposal, but they've managed to make a pitch that uh, makes it seem acceptable to uh, tell, tell us. Quote. Tell us first what would they be giving up, and then tell us what would they be getting. Well, they say they want to give up any uh, transfer payments to them as a First Nation for the delivery of health, education, and welfare services. Um, that they say that those services can be provided by the provincial government, so the money that goes to them to administer those services, as far as they're concerned, could go to the provincial government. Uh, what they want is they don't want to give up their rights to a stitch of land. They want to have uh, their Aboriginal title recognized to the whole of their traditional territory, not have reserves, not have small parcels of land, but have some kind of a partial ownership right, including to mineral development or anything that happens on their traditional territory. So they want to gain revenue from any uh, renewable or non-renewable resource development that happens over the whole of their traditional lands. And is that uh, substantially more than the uh, reserve? Well, it's, yeah, it's substantially more than the reserve. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Okay. But, um, uh, you know, the reserve is a small portion, um, you know, a few percentage uh, uh, of the, their traditional territory. And usually what happens in a modern treaty, as in the historic treaties, is you surrender your Aboriginal title to the right. whole of your traditional territory, and in exchange you get really a very, very small proportion of that land right. as reserve lands in the treaties, or in newer treaties, the comprehensive land claims, such as, for example, in the Nunavut case, the Nunavut gained the largest amount of land. They gained about 18% mm-hmm. of surface rights, to the land of their traditional territory, and they surrendered their Aboriginal title to the rest of it. Almost all the treaty negotiations that are being undertaken involve some kind of a similar trade-off, where you surrender your title to all of your land, you get some money, and you get uh, a smaller proportion of the land that you then own in fee simple title or that you have surface rights to. All right. Now, we understand that there is some conflict within the Gitscan between the hereditary leaders of the tribe and the elected band officials. Will you explain where this conflict comes from and what role it plays in this proposal? Sure. As with many First Nations, the, the Gitsan have a very elaborate political system that involves clans and houses that have specific responsibilities for specific pieces of territory. Um, and it really is a very refined and you know ancient uh, uh, system that has carried on to the present day. Now, overlaying that system, the government imposed the, the, the banned electoral system of the Indian Act. Um, and sometimes those the two systems have worked in tandem with each other. Many of the original councillors and chiefs through the Indian Act system were um, hereditary chiefs. But sometimes, uh, as you know, famously in the case of uh, in eastern Canada, the Haudenosaunee peoples, the two systems uh, can conflict. And I guess that's been happening with the Gitsan. So. One element of this proposal, I think, is it's a way of getting rid of the elected band council system. And much of the documents they have that deals with this, what they're really talking about is, um, you know, they're making an appeal that they want their own traditional system. They don't want the, uh, the, the elected band council system, which they see basically as really not very democratic, as not reflecting their culture and not reflecting their people's aspirations. Uh, so um, one of the things that by getting out of the Indian Act they would get out of is, um, is the electoral band council system. What kind of accountability is there in the traditional hereditary system? 
Well, there's all kinds of accountabilities. There's a fairly established system of asserting what kind of jurisdiction uh, each of the different clan chiefs has, and uh, there are some, I think, matriarchal mechanisms for removing um, uh, the, the clan chiefs. Um, and uh, it's really uh, an, an interesting element is a lot of what they're saying and in the traditional culture focuses on the education of the youth into the system and of people, you know, picking a young child that they see has a lot of promise regardless of, uh, of uh, you know, he might not be the, the direct son of, for example, hereditary chief. Uh, uh, the woman might find uh, another child who shows a lot of promise, who's in the broad family system, and that's the child they decide should become mm-hmm. the next um, hereditary chief. And so that child mm-hmm. is ceremonially given, uh, uh, sat in front of the chief, and eventually assumes that name. So um, it's uh, they have quite a complex system. It has checks and balances in it. It's not uh, uh, the sort of one person one vote system that we know about. But I would say it is, um, uh, in many respects, uh, a system that could be characterized as democratic, as expressing the will of the people. Okay, Peter Kolchinsky, we want to get your opinion on this proposal. You act as a consultant to several First Nations on issues of governance. Uh, what would be your advice on this one, should you well, be asked? I mean, one thing I would say is that any particular model, and the Gitsan are saying this quite clearly, uh, has to respect local circumstances, uh, local history, local culture. And so they're saying this isn't a model that they want to see everyone use. This is the model that they want to use themselves, and I respect their rights to do that. Um, I think they're not abandoning the principle of Aboriginal rights in this proposal. They're trying to find a sort of a different creative mix and way of achieving their their aspirations. So on the positive side, this would give them uh, a great deal of control and a good deal of the revenues that might come from resources that flow from their whole traditional territory. Uh, that's a big plus. Um, they're willing to, to they're willing to pay taxes. They're willing to give up a number of Aboriginal rights associated with the Indian Act. But I would say getting out of the Indian Act and finding a way of getting out of the Indian Act, to my mind, is probably a good thing. Um, so it, it would be really a need to see the details of an agreement. I think their principles are very creative, and there's some promise there. And there's even might be some ways that other First Nations could, uh, you know, could look at this model. But um, we'd have to see uh, uh, what it looks like in black and white. So uh, I'm not, I don't work as a consultant. That is, I'm not a paid consultant for First Nations. I work for free for First Nations. If people ask me about these things, uh, I'd like to see, you know, uh, what the final legal written agreement looks like before I can say in the end whether it would be good or bad. But I can say it's a, it's a creative and promising initiative um, that doesn't abandon the notion of Aboriginal rights, but certainly uses it in a very different way. And I'm of the, I guess, the let a thousand flowers bloom um, okay. uh, variety of uh, commentators, I guess, on Aboriginal issues. I like to see different models coming out of different territories, and uh, the federal government's kind of one-size-fits-all approach kind of be smashed. And so this certainly um, accomplishes that. Okay, well, uh, one more question. It's actually two parts. Sure. Uh, is this a, is this proposal a precedent? Should it uh, should it be accepted? And secondly, what are the chances of of it being accepted? Well, it would certainly be a precedent. I don't think we have anything else that could be called a treaty that would look like this. Um, and you know, the federal government has showed uh, has suddenly realized that it's something that they should be interested in um, uh, because it has a lot of things that would appeal to the conservative sort of um, populist uh, uh, line on Aboriginal issues. You know, they're, they're talking about paying taxes. 
They're talking about getting rid of special entitlements and having services and programs delivered through normal Canadian channels. So these are things that um, uh, the federal government has said that it wants. The, 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 the deal breaker, uh, and I think it's likely is a deal breaker, is that they continue to want control over the whole traditional territory. And they're quite clear that they, they don't want the territory devastated by industrial style non-renewable resource development. So, um, and I don't think the, uh, I don't know of a federal government that's prepared to offer that to a First Nation. Um, so, um, I, uh, ultimately, I don't see this uh, achieving. But, but I think the way in which they pitched the rhetoric, the way in which the Globe and Mail picked up on this story, for example, it, they've had this proposal sitting around for a year, a year and a half, but they've uh, people have cottoned onto it as, oh, you know, here's a, here's a group that wants to get out of the Indian Act and wants to pay taxes, and so it sounds like they're abandoning some basic principles. Uh, I think they're trying to find a clever way of maneuvering to get control of their land and. Um, uh, that's something that I don't think ultimately the federal government wants to see. Okay, this has been fascinating, and thank you so much uh, for clarifying uh, the issues in this interesting proposal. And um, if the story um, uh, continues uh, to develop, uh, we'll call on you again. Thanks, Peter. All right, thank you. This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. And today, being Remembrance Day week, I thought I would bring you some really great songs. Um, I want to remember the vets, and I want to support all the people who are vets in this country. But I also want to support all the people who are vets in this country. And most often, what happens is that people forget about the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion and the volunteers that went from all over the world to fight in Spain, and of course, those veterans were the first people on the entire earth that fought fascism in Europe, and uh, most often they're ignored. The, the One of the amazing things about the Spanish Civil War is that it left us an extraordinarily beautiful body of, of songs, and uh, here recorded very close to the front, a song by Bertolt Brecht with Ernst Busch in chorus, the Song of the International Brigades. Y como ser humano, el hombre lo que quiere es su pan. Las habladurías le bastan ya, porque estas nada le dan. Pues un, dos, tres, pues un, dos, tres, compañero en su lugar. Porque eres el pueblo, afiliate ya en el Frente Popular. And just because he's human, he doesn't like a pistol to his head. He wants no servants under him, and no boss over his head. Go left to street. Go left to street to the work that we must do. March on in the work as united from for you are ever to do. Si un ouvrier, oui, bien avec nous amis, n'est pas peur. Nous allons vers la grande union. 
soulèvres et travailleurs. Marchons au pas, marchons au pas, camarades, vers notre front. Range-toi dans le front de tous les ouvriers, avec tous tes frères étrangers. That was Ernst Busch and Chorus singing Near the Front in Spain back in 1938, singing the song of the International Brigades. One of the things about the Spanish Civil War is that it was a time when my mother learned all these very same songs, and I used to hear a whole bunch of them, uh, the Pete Bog soldiers and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid uh, growing up, and uh, so many of these songs I learned from my mom, and then later on, who recorded them, but Pete Seeger recorded them, and the Weavers recorded them, and they left us they left us a wonderful, wonderful uh, treasure of music. So here's the Weavers with Si Me Quieres Escribir. Let's go to the dark. 
Las cuatro generales, the four insurgent generals. The verse says, by next Christmas, holy evening, by next Christmas, holy evening, they'll all be hanging. It's too bad it didn't work out that way. But Tom Lear said, you know, he said, we, we, we in the folk song army, he said, 
We have, uh, they won all the wars, but we have all the good songs. And I guess that's kind of true in a, in a way when you listen to these things. Um, here is, a, here is one of my favorite songs from the Spanish Civil War. Here's Pete Seeger playing Viva la Quince Brigada, Long Live the 15th Brigade. Nice to be able to play these songs to honor the Mac Paps and honor the Abraham Lincoln Battalion and honor the Irish Brigade and honor all the young, neat and crazy and wonderful people who went and fought against Franco and against fascism. This is Music is the Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. See you next week. Solidarity. That is Alert Radio for November 12, 2009. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeff Hughes. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. 
Our alert headline writer around Chris the left, Webb, in left in seven days. Our technical producer, Tommy Allen. And, and our executive producer, Cy Gonick. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind Alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com. Thank you.